Afro Tales Podcast is a part of the Connected Podcast Network. Welcome, my friends, to Afro Tales Presents Unearthly Accounts. I am your host, the Shadow Man, and I will share with you stories with a more supernatural feel. So, without further ado, let's begin. The Black Vampire Mr. Gibbons was a gentleman of African extraction. His ancestors immigrated from the eastern coast of Guinea in a French ship and were sold in San Domingo remarkably cheap as they were reduced to mere skeletons by the yaws on the passage and all died shortly after their arrival. Except one small Negro of a very slender constitution and fit for no work whatever. The gentleman who purchased him charitably knocked out his brains and the body was thrown into the ocean. The tide returning in the night, it was washed upon the sands and the moon then shining bright. The gentleman was taking a walk to enjoy the coolness of the evening. Judge of his surprise, when the little corpse got up and complaining of a pain in its bowels, begged for some bread and butter. The planter, supposing his business to have been but half done, kicked him back in the water. The element seemed very familiar to him, and he swam back with much grace and agility, parting the sparkling waves with the jet black members, polished like ebony, but reflecting no single beam of light. His complexion was a dead black, his eyes a pure white. The iris was flame color, and the pupils of a clear, moonshiny luster. But so peculiarly constructed that, though prominent, they seemed to look into his own head. His hair was neither curly nor straight, but feathery, like the plumage of a crow. Having paddled again on shore, he came crawling crab fashion to the feet of Mr. Persona. The latter gentleman, in considerable alarm, not knowing whether it was Satan, Obi, or some other worthy with whom he had to deal, mustered up sufficient resolution to tie a large stone around the boy's middle. Then, with a main exertion of strength, he hurled him into the sparkling ocean. He fell where the reflection of the moon was brightest and sunk like lead, but immediately rose again like cork, perpendicularly, with the stone under his arm, while the radiant luster of the planet retreated from his dark figure, exhibiting in its most striking contrast its utter blackness. In this predicament, he came buoyant to land, surrounded as he seemed by a sphere of magic luster. He now walked up to the Frenchman, 
with his arms akimbo and looking remarkably fierce. Mr. Persone's particular hair stood up on end. But being ashamed that a little negro of 10 years old should put him in bodily fear, he knocked him down. The guinea man rose again without bending a joint. As fast as Mr. Persone could upset him, he recovered his altitude just like one of those small toys fabricated from pith tipped with lead called witches and hobgoblins by the rising generation. The planter, in utter amazement and despair, took hold of the child by both his extremities and pressing him to the earth, sat down upon him. Then, hollowing for his attendants, he ordered a tremendous fire to be kindled on the sand. This was accordingly done. De Gaulle congratulated himself on his perseverance in sagacity, as he had never heard of inaguous animals, was confident that though the water fiend was an expert in his own element, he could not stand the fiery ordeal. The boy, meanwhile, lay perfectly passive, as if he had been a mere log. But presently, when the pile was all in a light blaze, with a sudden expansion, like that of a compressed Indian rubber, he popped Mr. Persona up into the air many yards, and he alighted head foremost into the fire where he had intended to have dedicated the sable brat with his nine lives to Moloch. Whatever the Negro was, it is notorious that Mr. Persone was no salamander. He was rescued from the pirate, which, like Hercules, he had with unwittingly erected for himself, looking like a looking like a squeezed cat and having apparently no life left in his body. The attention of the domestics was drawn entirely to their master, who soon betrayed signs of animation, though he exhibited a most awful spectacle, being one continual sore and blister. His whole body was of one wound, as Virgil or some other poet has hyperbolically expressed himself. Mr. Persone, when he perfectly recovered his senses, found himself in his own bed, wrapped in greasy sheets, and smarting as if in a cayenne bath. He called for a glass of brandy. His dear wife, Euphemia, and his infant son, who had not yet been christened, his lady, with Streaming eyes presented herself before him, and after tenderly inquiring into the state of his health, told him, with a voice interrupted with sobs and hiccups, that when she went in the morning to see her baby, whom she had left in the cradle, there was nothing to be seen but the skin, hair, and nails. She declared that there never was such 
another object, except, indeed, the execution in Scudder's Museum. On the receipt of this horrible intelligence, Mr. Persone was seized with a violent spasmatic affliction, and shortly after expired, muttering something about Sacre and the Guinea Negro. The amiable but unfortunate Euphemia was thrown into several hysterical convulsions, as well as she might be, poor woman, when her husband had been made a holocaust and served up like a broiled and peppered chicken to feed the grim maw of death and her interesting infant, the first pledge of her pure and perfect love had been precociously sucked like an unripe orange and nothing left but his beautiful and tender skin the disconsolate widow caused her husband to be embalmed and he was buried amid the laminations and tears of all the funeral much regretted by all who had the honor of his acquaintance particularly by his negroes who could not soon forget him as he had left too many sincere marks of his regard upon their backs to be ever obliterated from their recollections time as all the greek tragedians solomon and others have remarked is a benevolent deity mrs personae's grief yielded to the soothing hand of the consoling power and her bloom and spirits returned with more luster and elasticity than they had before exhibited as the rose they had drooped in the fury of the passing storm erects its blushing honors and shows more beautiful and vivid tints when the squall is over many years after these occurrences took place while euphemia was in second mourning for her third husband she was indulging in the luxury of solitary grief and reading burton's anatomy of melancholy and the melancholy poems of dr farmer in her orangery the refreshing breezes from the ocean which now tempered the sultry heats of the declining day the soft perfume of the opening blossoms and the mellow tints of the evening sky shedding that holy light so dear to sensitive hearts diffused a calm over her soul wrapped in the contemplations of departed days while lost in the pensive reverie she perceived two strangers approaching her in the extremity of the long vista of the grove one of the men was a colored gentleman of remarkable height and deep jetty blackness a perfect model of a congo apollo he was dressed in rich garb of a moorish prince and led by the hand a pale european boy in an asiatic dress whose languid consonants slender form and tristful gait were 
strongly contrasted with the portly appearance and majestic step of his conductor. The boy saluted the lovely widow, and after an interchange of compliments, accepted her polite invitation to sit down and take tea with her in the bower. She learned from the elder stranger that he had brought out a cargo of slaves whom his subjects had lately taken prisoners in war and whom he had resolved to dispose of himself as he was desirous of seeing the world. His page, he said, was an orphan left by a slave merchant in Africa. The manners and conversation of the prince had an irresistible charm. The regal port was manifest in his gigantic and well-proportioned frame, and majesty was conspicuous on his brow without its diadem. The turban and crescent had never graced a nobler front, but the winning condensation of his tone and language, while they could not banish the feelings of the presence of royalty, removed every restraint incident to the consciousness. He criticized the works, which Euphemia had been perusing, with masterly precision, and displayed more knowledge than even the accomplished ideologist of Lady Morgan, with infinitely more discretion and good sense. It is remarked by the Abbey Renown that there is a peculiar elegance and beauty in the complexion of the Africans, when the eyes and nose are accustomed to their hue and odor. The truth was realized by Euphemia as she gazed on the open visage of her illustrious guest. She thought surely that in him nature might stand up and say, this was a man. And certainly it is only the weakness and imperfection of our human senses, which penetrating no further than the surface is forever deceived by superficial shadows. The Empyrean is always blue. Whatever vapors may float in our constructed atmosphere, and if we gaze in the rows of skulls which festoon and garnish surgeons' halls, we can apply no standard to determine their relative beauty. They are all equally ugly. And the block of Helen might be mistaken for that of Medusa. Shakespeare, true to nature, has always remarked, black men are pearls in beauty's lady's eyes. The beauty, then, the royalty, gentility, and various accomplishments of the Bambuk monarch made captive the sensible heart of the French widow. She forgot her ogles, graces, and even her loquacity. Rooted to her seat, she fixed in immovable contemplation of the African's face. What peculiar feature or lineament attracted her attention? She knew not. His eyes, though bright, did not sparkle, and the iris 
though of a more vivid red than the roseate line in the rainbow, emitted no scintillations. In fact, his whole countenance seemed to look and to preambulate her own. The conversation gradually assumed a more impassioned and amorous complexion, and the little page, who, though meager and emaciated, evidently showed that he was of no gump for his years. Taking certain broad hints, cast a mournful and intelligent look on the widow, said he would fetch a short walk in the plantation, and left the orangery. The prince, then spreading his glittering sash upon the grass, went down on his knees upon it, and broke out into the most ardent exclamations of love and admiration, and professions of constant attachment. He said that the flat-nosed beauties of Zara, the scarred, squab figures of the Golden Coast, the well-proportioned Zelias, Calypsos, and Zamas of the banks of the Niger, and even the great Hottentotten Venus herself had never for a moment made the least impression on his heart. His passion was a mystery to himself, its origin secret as the source of the Nile. But full and impetuous as its ample channel when replenished from the celestial fountains of Abyssinia. While if Mrs. Dubois would shine upon its waves, its enlivened currents would fertilize its vast dominions in the luxuriant realms of Central Africa, making them fructify yet more abundantly with burning gold and radiant diamonds. What? female heart could resist such pleadings and the compliment implied in such a preference when Zimbo the page returned the parties had agreed to be privately united on the same evening the ceremony was accordingly performed on the spot by the family chaplain of Mrs. Dubois not that many remonstrances on his part as to the impropriety of marrying a negro the prince did not see to resent the affront which by and by he had no right to do as the priest got nothing for the job zimbo too was extremely restless till mrs dubois gave him some sweetmeats which seemed to quiet his conscience after which he took some stiff punch and fell asleep. About midnight, the prince came to him, and shaking him by the ears, bade him arise and follow him. His bride was hanging on his arm in an enchanting dishabille, and did not seem to be in perfect possession of her right senses. Zimbo mournfully followed the new married pair. They went silently out of the back door with cautious steps and proceeded through the orangery. No breath of wind was stirring, 
The moon was on its zenith, surrounded by a pale halo of ghostly luster. When they had crossed the plantation, they came to a place of sepulchre, where the dark cypresses and lubrious mahogany admitted but sparse and glimmering streaks of funeral light, which, falling on the rank foliage, the white monuments had broken ground beneath, presented a thousand dusky shapes, flitting in the dim uncertainty dear to superstition. Vague terrors seized on the mind of the bride, and she began very naturally to inquire what was the use of getting out of a comfortable bed and trailing through the heavy dew in her undress to such an unusual spot for midnight recreation. They now stood near the spot where her three husbands, several children, and the skin, hair, and nails of her first baby were deposited in a row. At the foot of a tamarind lay her third son, whose Christian name was Spoon, and who died, according to the tombstone, in a fit of intoxication, aged seven years and six months. On him she had bestowed a greater share of tenderness than any of her other offspring, and his loss had caused her most affliction. The African, making observations on the grave, began to strip himself very expeditiously. Assisted by Zimbo, he seemed to recover from his blues, and by his activity and eagerness manifested his expectations of soon seeing some fine sport. Presently, the two Jenny, or gentlemen, or whatever they were, turned towards the east and performed certain antic prostrations, throwing handfuls of earth three times over their heads. Then returning to the tomb, they tore up the sides with a ravenous fury and soon drew out the last mentioned son of the lady and threw him on the grass beside the grave. Zimbo fell as fiercely upon the corpse as a hungry dog upon its dinner, but was arrested by the African, who lent him a severe box on the ears, which sent him burbling to a corner of the cemetery. What added both to the mother's horrors and admiration was that the body of her child was perfectly fresh, and the olfactory nerves experienced no unsavory sensation from his proximity. While his cheeks were diffused with so deep a tinge of scarlet that they shone like ruddy fireballs in the darkness of the spot, her husband drew a golden goblet from beneath a large stone. Then, bending over the corpse, he scooped out the heart with his long and polished nails and having pressed the blood into the chalice mingled with it some dark particles gathered from 
the newly turned up earth. Then seizing his passive and trembling spouse by the throat and presenting the unnatural mixture to her lips, he cried in a hollow voice whose inflection thrilled through each fiber of his victim. Swear, or if that it's against your principles, affirm by this dirty blood and bloody dirt, by this watery blood and bloody water, by this watery dirt and dirty water, that you will never disclose in any manner aught of what you've seen and shall see this night. Call them all to witness your wish, that in the moment when you even conceive the thought of perjury, your bowels may burst out and your bones rot. Swear and drink. The affrighted woman murmured as articulately as the iron grip of the monsters would suffer her, that she was not thirsty and had not breath enough to aspire such a terrible conjuration. No trifling, roared the fiend. You have not a moment to deliberate. But his bellowing and threats were vain. He found to his mortification that he had gotten the wrong saw by the ear, or rather by the throat. She stuttered out in the most pitiful accents which would have softened any heart, but a vampire has not. That though she was by no means partial to the delectable confectionery of the pharmacopoeia, calomel and jala, ipcaquana, rhubarb, and tartametic, she would rather take them all, collectively and individually, than the unchristian decoction he held against her teeth. Foaming with madness, till the white slaver flowed down his sable limbs, the African hurled Miss Persona, Dubois, etc., etc., on the grave of her first husband and stamped violently on the earth. It seemed to have, as with the throes of an earthquake, immediately the tumult yawned. The ponderous stones and slabs were shaken from their ancient sockets, and the ghastly deed, in uncouth attitudes, crawled from their nooks, with their hair curling of torturous and serpent twinnings, and their eyeballs of fire bursting from their heads, while as they extended their withered arms and tapering fingers furnished with bloodhound claws. Their gory shrouds fell in wild drapery around them, transiently revealing their forms, bloated as if to bursting, and often incarnate with clotted blood, yet warm and dripping. The lady, as those who have been in similar predicaments may suppose, soon lost her recollection. Not, however, before she had seen Zimbo busily employed in tearing up the grave of her first husband, she saw herself surrounded by the specters and lost all consciousness. When reason and sense returned, she found herself in the same place, and it was also the midnight hour.
She was laying by the grave of Mr. Brassone, and her breast was stained with blood. A wide wound appeared to have been inflicted there, but was now healed over with scar tissue. Imagine if you can her surprise, when by a certain carnivorous craving in her maw, and by putting this and that together, she found she was a vampire, and gathered from her indistinct reminiscences of the preceding night that she had been sucked, and that it was now her turn to eject the peaceful tenants of the grave. With the delightful prospect of immortality before her, she began to examine the graves for a subject to satisfy her furious appetite. When she had selected one to her mind, a new marvel arrested her attention. Her first husband got up out of his coffin, and with all the grace so natural to his countrymen, made her a low bow in the last fashion and opened his arms to receive her. What were the emotions of this fond couple when, after a lingering separation for 16 years, they again embraced each other with the ardor of an affection equal to their earliest transports in which their long divorce served only to increase, tenderly inquiring into the state of each other's health and the accidents which had befallen them during their disjunction. They forgot even their hunger and thirst, and sitting down on a tombstone made a thousand inquiries, which, however they related to family concerns, might not be as interesting to the reader as they were to the parties concerned. Mr. Persone, however, looked rather glum when he learned that his lady had been thrice married since his decease. But she assured him that she would never more tolerate the addresses of another suitor. And as for the two husbands, they were rotten enough by this time, as she was confident that they had not attended the vampire ball on the preceding night. As for her sable spouse, she trusted that he would never again appear to interrupt their happiness. But while she was expressing this hope, the gentleman in question, like his relation below, according to the old proverb, came upon the ground with the zimbo. Mr. Persone, having neither sword nor pistol at hand, armed himself with a gigantic thigh bone and warned the black prince to stand upon his guard as he meant to punish him severely. But Zimbo, rushing between the parties, raised his hands in a supplicating posture, while the generous monarch, making a salam to his antagonist, begged him keep himself quiet and look behind him. They both turned around on this intimation when to utter confusion of the lady, her second and third husbands, Monsieur Macon and Dubois, arose from their graves, where they had been lovingly deposited by the side 
of each other. They both advanced to salute their wife, but Mr. Persone, brandishing his thigh bone, warned them to stand off as he had the first title to the lane. Much confusion would have ensued had not the African prince interfered. He told the gentleman that so delicate a point could only be settled in an honorable way and proposed that Mr. Marquand and Mr. Dubois should first settle their difference in a personal encounter, after which Mr. Persone might give the survivor gentlemanly satisfaction. To this, all parties assented. As they were already stripped and combatants shook hands to show their mutual goodwill, they proceeded to action. Without further ceremony, Mr. Dubois Mr. Dubois soon brought Claret from Mr. Marquand, who, in returning the compliment, fibbed Mr. Dubois so severely in the bowels that he lost his wind, and gasping for breath, smote the air on all sides. Without any of his blows telling, he came to the ground, and his bones rattled as he fell. But soon recovering his breath, he made a desperate attack on Mr. Marquand's sconce and favored him with so terrible a facer that he fell incontently like a bull smitten in his front. But entangled in his own heels with those of Mr. Dubois, they both came simultaneously to the ground striking their heads against different tombstones and knocking out their own brains. They rose again, refreshed like the giant of old, by their grappling with the earth and all the better for the loss of their wits, which indeed was a mere trifle. But the African, who had no time to see more sport, fixed them to the side by his superior strength, and Zimbo, dexterously pinned them fast by driving a stake through their hearts with a large sledgehammer which he carried about his person for such emergencies. During the operation, their roaring surpassed that which is performed by the lioness when bereft of her whelps. But as soon as they were fiery nailed to the counter, they lay motionless and breathless a horrible pair of spectacles of sin and misery. The African assured the lady that she need never fear their second resurrection. Mr. Persona politely offered to settle their controversy in any mode most agreeable to the prince, either to box with him on the spot or appoint a meeting in future with pistols rifles, small or broad swords, or else they might toss up. Who should set fire to a barrel of gunpowder? The prince said that quarreling was all nonsense and offered his hand. But Mr. Persone refused, saying, Don't be too familiar, Blackie, and renewing his threats of cracking him over the noodle with the thigh bone. The generous monarch pocketed the affront. You have been, he said, sufficiently rewarded for the cruelties you practiced upon my person. 
several years ago. I forgive you, my dear sir. What you performed and intended to perform on me. Here is your son, who has grown considerably, as you may observe. And I assure you that his education has not been neglected. To his exertions last night, you are indebted for your revivifications. And as you may remember, you were embalmed. You have kept quite sweet and fresh ever since your internment. Amiable and virtuous vampires. May you long enjoy the tranquility and contentment which you may merit and accomplishments so eminently deserve. A vessel lies in the port, ready to sail for Europe in an hour. The island is no longer a place for you. Here is money to pay your passage. And all I have to say is that the sooner you're off, the better. Farewell. So saying, he departed without waiting for the acknowledgement of the parties. Mr. Person and his ladies, whom we shall again call by the first marriage name, did not exactly comprehend what their dinghy benefactor meant by bidding them take French leave of the island, like pickpockets and outlaws. As they were yet wondering at their own existence, like Adam and Eve, the first day of their creation, and as they had reason to believe the prince a potent magician who could rouse the dead from their sermons and turn the planets from their courses. For this reason, they concluded to follow his bidding without any impertinent scruples. But as the keen edge of the hunger had been wetting by delay, they would fain have taken supper and digested a little something wherewithal to strengthen them before they set out. Zimbo, who had filled his own bread basket very lately and was in no such necessity, protested with all the vehemence which filial reverence would permit against the unreasonable gratification of their unnatural craving and recited with such emphasis and good discretion an extract from Councillor Phillips' harangue about the cannibal appetite of his rejected altar, which his parents did not understand and of course thought very sublime. But even this masterpiece of mystical eloquence would have been delivered in vain had not the boy given other reasons of such cognancy that they licked their lips, cast a longing, lingering look at the graveyard, and followed him without more opposition. They they prosecuted their nocturnal march through closely woven and solemn groves until they descended into a profound valley where the light of the pale planet of magic adoration streamed and quivered on seared files of bright armory. The leader of the band seemed to have expected their arrival, and mutual tokens 
of recognition passed between him and Zimbo. The whole company then set forward with an array in silence. No cymbal clashed, no clarion rang. Still were the pipe and drum, save heavy thread and armor's clang. The sullen march was dumb. By continual descent, they seemed to have penetrated the bowels of a cavern, whose ramifications ran under the sea as they heard a murmuring roar as the ocean above their heads. The party, by instruction of Zimbo, dispersed themselves in different directions until they had enclosed the interior of the rock where its largest chamber was. To speak catacristically, so artfully concealed by nature that no one, not instructed by an adept in its subterranean topography, could ever have detected the secret of its existence. It had been in former days a place of deposit and asylum for the buccaneers, and its situation had been since known only to the professors of the Obia arts who held their midnight orgies. Mr. and Mrs. Persone, guided by their son, were placed in a situation through the crevices of the inner partitions of the rock they could observe what was passing in the interior. It seemed at first view a vast hall of Arabian romance, supported by immense shafts and studded with precocious stones. So various and beautiful were the hues which the different spars assumed in the light of a hundred torches blazing in every quarter and illuminating the farthest recesses of the cave. The walls were decorated with other appendages, which added to the mystery, if not to the embellishment of the scene. Being irregularly stained with blood, decorated with rude tapestry of many-colored plumage, and stuccoed with the beaks of parrots, the teeth of dogs and alligators, bones of cats, broken glass and eggshells, plastered with compositions of rum and grave dirt, the implements of Negro witchcraft. At one extremity of the extensive apartment, on a kind of neutral throne, sat several black moors in sumptuous Moorish apparel, whom, by their swollen forms and remarkable eyes, Mr. Persona knew to be ghouls, and among whom she recognized her late husband. The whole range of this vast amphitheater, sweeping from before the throne, was occupied by slaves, rudely attired and imperfectly armed with cubes and missiles. A decent platoon of black guards were posted before the vampire monarchs, and in the center, a band of musicians performed an exquisite symphony. The soft strains of the Meriwang, the lively notes of the Dundo, and the martial accompaniment of the Gumbe, made with their united noises 
a discordant harmony whose powers the lyre of Orpheus could not equal and which could certainly be enough to frighten all the host of pandemonium. The oratorio being finished, the African prince rose and making an obeisance to the company, cleared his throat and began to address them as fellows. Gentlemen and vampires. But the vampires expressing their resentment against the breach of etiquette, he corrected himself. Vampires and gentlemen. But the Negroes were no more willing to come last than the vampires, and a loud growl accompanied by a slight hiss gained interpreted again interrupted the orator. He was not, however, disconcerted, but like Mr. Burke, thundered out an iteration of the offensive sentence. Yes, he said. I repeat it, vampires and gentlemen. Shall not the immortal precede the mortal? Shall not those whose diet surpass the nectar and ambrosia of the celestials precede the ephemeral race who fattened on the unclean juice of brutes, the rank essence of Esculent productions, or the nauseous liquor of the distillery. Applause here, here, and seaboard from the vampire, groans from the Negroes. Gentlemen of color, I appeal to yourselves. Shall not the descendants of the gods be named before the offspring of the earth-born image? From Titan impregnated with celestial fire, from Prometheus was the first vampire. You must all know, as you have undoubtedly read Aeschylus, that the vulture who preyed on his liver was neither fish, flesh, nor fowl. He is called a dog, which makes him a quadruped. He is represented as Epsilon, Rho, Pi, Omega, Upsilon, creeping, which proves him an insect, and is said to have wings, which shows that he was a bird. Now, from this amphibious monster have descended the crows, the jackals and the bloodhounds, the pirate bat of Madagascar, the man-killing Evuchis of Chile, the sharks, the crocodiles, the krakens, the horse leeches, the Cape Cod sea serpents, the mermaids, the incubi, and the succubi. Loud cheering from the vampires. From Titan himself. Descended the Cyclopses and all other ancient and modern anthropopophagi, the Moko tribe of your own Ebos, to whom I have the honor of being related. Those of you, too, are his posterity, who after your death return to your native land. The true Elysium 
where the balmy bowl of the cocoa, the soft bloom of the anana, the cold black beauties of the kind of love shall forever reward your fortitude and steep in forgetfulness the memory of your wrongs. Hear, hear from the Negroes. But none of these genera of species of our order must longer engage your dignified and charitable attention. I come to ourselves full-blooded, unadulterated, immortal bloodsuckers, to ourselves, whether ghouls or afrites or vampires, rokulakas, barolokas, or bukulokas, to ourselves the terror of the living and of the dead and the participants of the nature of both. To ourselves, the emblems at once of corruption and of vitality, blotted from the records of existence and replenished to the repletion with circulating life, abandoned by the quick and unrecognized by the dead at once relics and relics, rocked on the basis of our own eternities, the chronicles of what was, the solemn and sublime mementos of what must be, unqualified approbation from both sides of the house. The estate of vampirism is a fetale and may be docked in two different ways. The first mode is the sanguinary practice of perforating the subject with a stake. And this is final. The other is produced by a gentle operation of narcotic potion you behold in this vial, by whose lenient and opium influence the individual is restored to the plight in which he has previous to his death or his becoming a vampire and belongs to the Obia mysteries. But to come to the subject of our present meeting, sublime and soul-elevating theme, the emancipation of the Negroes, the consecration of the soil of St. Domingo, through the manes of murdered patriots in all ages. No matter whether the bill of sale was scrawled in French or English, no matter whether we were taken prisoners in a battle between Leopoldus or the Jackals, or in the skirmish between Sambos and the Sawpits, no matter whether we were bought for calico and cotton or for gunpowder or for shot. No matter whether we were transported in chains or in ropes, 
in a brig or a schooner or a 74. The first moment we come ashore in San Domingo, our souls shall swell like a sponge in the liquid element. Our bodies shall burst from their fetters, glorious as Curacio from his shell. Our minds shall soar like the car of the aeronauts when its ligaments are cut. In a word, oh my brethren, we shall be free. Our fetters disconnected and our chains dissolved. We shall stand liberated, redeemed, emancipated, and disenthralled by the irresistible genius of universal emancipation. Unparalleled burst of unprecedented applause. Such was the report of this oration taken down in shorthand by Zimbo, for whose extraordinary sagacity so much proofs have been exhibited, and who was never unprovided with materials of an emergency. The fiery oratory of the prince communicated such inspiration to the auditors that the whole mass of their Thick blood leaped up with the quickness pulsing of anticipated freedom. They danced and sung with violent gesticulations, like perfect corribantes. But unfortunately, their pirates were interrupted by glittering bayonets of the soldiers who poured in upon them from every quarter and hemmed them in. With the bristling ship while the beast of steel, the vampires, surprised but undaunted, unsheathed their sabers and drew up in a gallant style, as if determined to die game. Being indeed assured that like so many phoenixes, they would rise from their own ashes as often as they might be cut down. A desperate conflict ensued during which Mrs. Persona observed the fire mentioned by the prince lying on the ground and very thoughtfully put it in her reticule. The slaves, seeing how the business was likely to terminate, prudently sneaked off while the attention of the military was occupied by the vampires. The former were violently exasperated to find all the labor so unprofitable. Since while they themselves were wounded by every blow of their opponents, the latter, like so many nine pins, were set up as fast as they were bowled down, bending to the storm like mast on a tempestuous ocean, and rising again upon the billow in perpendicular triumph. But being instructed by Zimbo, the soldiers pinioned them as they fell and prevented their rising. By sitting in great numbers on their bodies, 
though the task was somewhat like that of detaining Quicksilver beneath the fingers. The prince, however, still fought desperately, brandishing a huge scimitar in either hand. He swayed his arms like the sails of a windmill, while limbs, heads, and bodies flew about him, curveting and dancing in the air, as when the ingenious Mr. Maffey pulls to pieces a cockroach or an old woman, children, chickens, friars, and petticoats dance about in wild fusion. To the artist's hand, again it brings order out of chaos. Or as when the renowned knight of the bedchamber, whose name eternal vases shall record, saw the ungenerous caricature on the wall, Wielding a ponderous jug, he smote the innocent tables, chairs, and bedposts, and strode victorious over the gory fields. So fought the prince, till being neatly pricked in the spine, unexpectedly, he spoused. As Johannes Porco Latinus remarks, in Impresia Fundamentia, and was immediately set upon by a host. So when a Gortelian lion is pierced by a light bamboo, overpowered by the hunters, he struggles in his thralls like Includius under Athena, and dies at last with heart-wrung tears of anguish and reverberating roars of hatred. Stakes are immediately procured and the whole infernal fraternity securely disposed of as their compeers described by Homer. With burning chains fixed to the brazen floors and locked by hell's inexorable doors. With their bellowings, the vast chambers of the subterranean rung like the caverns of Delphos when the infallible air was fired by the crafty priest. The inhabitants of the island started up from their slumbers in shuddering terror and believed that an earthquake was rumbling beneath their feet. Mr. and Mrs. Persona and Zimbo lost no time in trying the effects of the African's stolen prescription. Being thrown into tranquil slumber they were conveyed to their plantations and awoke the next morning perfectly well, excepting slight colds in the head. Mr. Persona, having been in status quo for 16 years, was now much younger than his lady, a circumstance for which she was not all that sorry, and which he himself declared by no means displeased him the remainder of their life was serene as a tropic night, illumined by a mild effulgence of domestic love, fanned by the soft aspiration of peaceful bosoms, and enlivened by the firefly scintillations of rapture. Zimbo, to whose taste and ingenuity they were indebted for their happiness, was baptized with the Christian name of Barbus, after an uncle of his mother's, 
recorded what the reader has perused. One only circumstance, like one of those claps of thunder, frankly heard in an unclouded sky, passed over the tranquility of the bosoms. Mrs. Persona's fourth husband's child was a mulatto, and of vampirish propensities, of which his mother and Mr. Persona were never able to entirely to cure him. Having used up all the African's preparation, the intelligent reader, if any such there be, will remember that this narrative commenced with the name of Mr. Anthony Gibbons, of whom nothing has since been said, and whose adventures, to use a form trope, must remain buried in the bowels of futurity until a more convenient opportunity. He is a lineal descendant from the last mentioned mulatto, and the manuscript, which is now given to the public, was transmitted to him from his ancestors. He is a resident of Essex County, New Jersey, and candor requires us to state that he is in no relation to his celebrated namesake at Elizabethtown and is notorious to all who have had the pleasure of witnessing the size of the latter gentleman's waist that he has too much bowels for so diabolical a profession. And it is to be hoped in charity that though he is such a delicate morsel when he is laid in a sepulchre of his fathers, he may not prove tidbit to glut the thirst of a vampire. Thank you, my friends, for joining me this evening. And until next time, remember, you can always find me in the shadows. <laughs>